the apostasy, will you be fooled? What would it mean if you found out that your doctrine about Christianity was wrong or different from the one taught by Jesus? How would it affect you and what would you do about it? I have realized that these are very important questions. This is because we are taught that a time is coming and is already here that many will fall away from the faith. Matthew 24 9-12 from the Message Bible tells us this, They are going to throw you to the wolves and kill you, everyone hating you because you carry my name. And then, going from bad to worse, it will be dog-eat-dog, everyone at each other's throat, everyone hating each other. In the confusion, lying preachers will come forward and deceive a lot of people. For many others, the overwhelming spread of evil will do them in and nothing will be left of their love but a mound of ashes. In other words, there will be a time when those who declare that they follow the Christian faith will, out of fear of the children of disobedience, be exposed as who and whose they are. This is a clear indication they were not who they said they were, 1 John 2:19. Now, this apostasy is known as the abandonment or renunciation of the Christian belief. This action which is the turning away from the faith is what is written in 2 Thessalonians 2:3. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. This is very important in that 2 Thessalonians 2 goes on to tell us that this person is intertwined in the plan of God of destroying the works of the devil, 1 John 3. We are told in verses 9-12, Even him, whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them, that perish, because they received not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. This person will come in a very charismatic or need to reform spirit which will effectively influence many to take up his doctrine of how to become self-sufficient with just a little bit of Jesus. Jesus calls him and those that follow him wolves in sheep's clothing and Paul said they are grievous wolves. Anyway it goes, it is all set into God's plan. Now, let us look at this key word, perdition. In strong concordance, G622, perdition is, ruin or loss, physical, spiritual or eternal, a damnable nation, destruction, death, perdition, perish, pernicious ways, waste. This is the trademark of the children of disobedience, the devil, that get what they want by stealing, killing and destroying. Here the writer tells us that a day is coming when the son of perdition, who is from the line of Cain, will attempt to influence the minds of many not to trust in the Lord. He will be using all types of communication systems to spread the false doctrine of, you can determine your destiny. Determining your destiny is important to those who feel they have free will. This free will, which is not given to them by God, gives them the right to go about their business with or without God in the picture or serving a limited role in it. This apostasy is identified in Hebrews 6 4-6, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and was made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put Him to an open shame. Looking into this, we find that knowingly denouncing the works of the Lord's Spirit of conversion, is an event that there is no coming back from. The penalty for this action is body and soul damnation. Now, on the other hand, this verse informs us that those who have declared themselves as believers, true believers, cannot fall away, in other words, they cannot be tricked by the vain words of the children of the wicked one. 
Why is this the case? Well, 1 John 3 tells us who and whose we are. We are told, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. To clarify this sin thing, sin is the one person, Genesis 4-7, that moves one away from the true living God, God in the flesh, Jesus, to another false God, Strong Concordance G266. The core of sin is wickedness. You can believe it or not, but God's Word is true and cannot be broken, John 10:35-36. Here, the impossibility is the fact that the reclaiming of the heavenly gift of the Holy Spirit. To continue, we understand that the falling away is a signal for events to come. First, the wholesale spread of wickedness and finally the manifestation of the son of perdition. Daniel in verse 9:27 talks about this as being the abomination of desolation. Matthew 24:15 confirms this when Jesus tells the people, "When ye, therefore, shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. This is a plague of abomination that will spread and touch many. The Great War, Good versus Evil What we are talking about is the apostasy that was caused by a plague that has been on humanity since the curse was placed on the serpent's seed. The plague that was placed on Cain in Genesis 4 and manifested in Genesis 6 when the daughters of men seduced, some of, the sons of Adam. This apostasy caused them to sin, strong concordance H 2398, to miss the goal or path of right and duty, to incur guilt, incur a penalty by sin, forfeit. It is my perspective that these sons of Adam only became who they were, infiltrators of righteousness. Jude 4 states, For there are certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, and denying the only Lord God, and our Lord Jesus Christ. The turning of the grace of God to lasciviousness is doing whatever their free will led them to do. With lasciviousness being the key, strong concordance, G766, means unbridled lust, excess, licentiousness, lasciviousness, wantonness, outrageousness, shamelessness, insolence. Those men who acted in this way are only the children of the devil. Therefore, these certain men of old are the ones from Genesis 6, the ones that produced to children that were known as men of old, men of renown? The great wicked influencers of the past. God declared war between the woman and the serpent, a war that will be continuous until God's plan is fulfilled. His plan that was initiated and activated with Adam, re-established at the birth of Jesus and will conclude at the arrival of the New Jerusalem. Now this war between good and evil that was prophesied about by God in the garden, has survived until today. The children of darkness warring against the children of light. In perspective, the conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Was this the thing the Apostle Paul was talking about in Ephesians 5, 8, For ye were sometimes darkness, unrighteousness, but now, ye are the light, righteousness, of the Lord, walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth proving what is acceptable unto the Lord? and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. If I can digress, the strong concordance defines darkness H2821, the dark, hence, literally, darkness, figuratively, misery, destruction, death, ignorance, sorrow, wickedness, night, obscurity. In relationship to Genesis 1, where darkness covered the deep, 
Strong Concordance H2822 indicates darkness is obscurity and is in a secret place. The meaning of obscurity is the state of being unknown, inconspicuous, or unimportant. This is because she is in a secret place of God. In Zechariah 5-5-11 we learn this, the messenger angel appeared and said, Look up. Tell me what you see. I said, What in the world is that? He said, This is a bushel basket on a journey. It holds the sin of everyone, everywhere. Then the lid made of lead was removed from the basket, and a woman was sitting in it. He said, This is Miss Wicked. He pushed her back down into the basket and clamped the lead lid over her. Then I looked up and to my surprise saw two women flying on outstretched wings, they airlifted the bushel basket into the sky. I said to the messenger angel, Where are they taking the bushel basket? He said, East to the land of Shinar. They will build a garage to house it. When it's finished, the basket will be stored there. Also, there is an interesting thing concerning the storing of the bushel basket in Zechariah 5. It is stored in the east of the land of Shinar. Shinar is the same place the Tower of Babel was, Genesis 11. Now, James 4 5-8 tells us how to deal with the children of the wicked one. We do it the same way we do it to him, by resisting them by the humbleness of the grace of God. Strong Concordance, G5485, identifies grace as the merciful kindness by which God, exerting His holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps, strengthens, increases them in Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and kindles them to the exercise of the Christian virtues. We find here that the way the wicked one and his children are defeated is by God's grace. In Jude 9 and Zechariah 3 2, Satan is rebuked by God. What does that mean to you? Now, this brings us to the crust of this narrative. The writer of two-thirds of the New Testament Bible. None other than the Apostle Paul. Paul has become known as one of the most controversial apologists since Jesus. His continuous fights with the traditional Jews over his commentaries on the conclusion of the Law and the Prophets of the Old Testament and how they related to Jesus of Nazareth got very violent at times. I mentioned that Paul is an apologist. Before we move into Paul's situation with the Jews and others, let us look at the different aspects of apologetics. Apologetics, the unknown office. Apologetics according to the dictionary is the theology concerned with the defense of Christianity. It is a Greek word that means speaking in defense. However, there may be a misunderstanding of this word with many. The problem with apologetics is that it is not a biblical term nor is it an official biblical office within the church. Those who declare themselves as apologists are considered self-proclaim. Now, there are many indications that a defense of the faith is important. In Jude 1-3 he states, Beloved when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you, and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Are you aware of the faith that was once delivered to the saints? Being that Jude was talking to them about certain men who had crept in unawares, could he have been talking about the hypocritical nature of the scribes, priests and Pharisees, the children of the devil, John 8. Anyway, in 1 Peter 314 14-16 we are told, Ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to answer every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience, that, whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, 
they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. Apologetics is many times confused with an apology, which means to regret, have remorse, or feel sorrowful, for an action. But, the use of this word within the Christian community is to have an answer to those who have a question concerning your faith in Christ. For many Christians, it is a verbal defense of Jesus to those who are unbelievers, antichrists. However, apologetics is also directed toward those within the church. This is important because we are held accountable for the action of those we let into the sanctuary. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5 about who judges what, he states in verses 12 and 13, For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? But for them that are without God judgeth. Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. The primary duty of an apologist is to clear the minds of those within the church about their relationship with God and their responsibility of impacting their communities. The responsibility of impacting the community is ensuring we are a positive influence on every aspect of society. Jesus tells us this in John 9:34-35, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have love one to another. Loving one to another is talking about those who are in the family of God, not those who are in the family of the devil. The writer indicates here that all positive love toward those in the family of God will draw those who are as unto him. Worldview, worldly or godly, which one is yours? Apologetics is centered around two basic worldviews. A worldview is the fundamental cognitive orientation of an individual or society encompassing the whole of the individual's or society's knowledge and point of view. A worldview can include natural philosophy, fundamental, existential, and normative postulates, or themes, values, emotions, and ethics. It is understood that there is a philosophical worldview that is secular, worldly, and a biblical worldview that is theologically based, godly. The philosophical worldview focuses on the principles of being, knowledge, or conduct of man. As taught in school, philosophy is the study of man. On the other hand, theology is the attributes of how God relates to his creation, primarily man. In the world of academic, theology is the study of God. The dictionary also defines a worldview as, the beliefs, values, and behaviors of a culture that stems directly from its culture, a person's worldview is their overall perspective from which he or she views and interprets the world. It can also include the beliefs about life and the universe held by a group. The bottom line is that a worldview is an individual's point of view concerning how they see the various aspects of the functioning of society and how they fit into it. This aspect can be classified as good or evil. We find within a worldview there are two aspects. One that is based on philosophy and the other on theology. The science of philosophy is the science of the study of the knowledge of man and how it relates to our relationship one to another. Philosophy is the study of man and his relationship to man. Theology on the other hand is the study of God's relationship to his creation, primarily man. The philosophical secular worldview is identified as secularism. To have a secularist view means, the separation of religion from political, economic, social and cultural aspects of life, religion is treated as a purely personal matter. It emphasized the dissociation of the state from religion and full freedom to all religions and tolerance of all religions. As we can see, a secular worldview is void of any religious belief. However, the fact that it is called in its true form secularism, 
indicates that it has all the components of a religion. This type of world is populated by the children of disobedience. They operate under the attributes of the works of the flesh. These attributes consist of adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. The concept of this worldview is to get whatever you can by any means necessary. Because of the current nature of secularism, there has been a shift in the rules that govern it. Now, secularism is at war with religion, primarily Christianity, on a very aggressive level. This is true with the introduction of intersectionality, critical theory, and philosophical theology into this view. It must be noted here that these three theories operate in the area of science known as psychology which is knowing how to influence the mind. Within these three theories, there is an aspect of comparison utilizing debating what is right or wrong in both society and Christianity. An example of a philosophical theology secular worldview is this debate between Calvinism and Arminianism, which is a belief that God does or does not control human behavior. This theory like the other ones is a never-ending story. Going around and around like a dog chasing its tail. The infiltration, who are the good guys and the bad guys? Presently, several Christian movements are playing around with intersectionality, critical theory, and philosophical theology. Many of them have adopted some of the following beliefs into their doctrines. The Gospel of Permissive Grace The Gospel of Social Justice The Gospel of New Age Spirituality Many other beliefs have crept into mainstream Christian doctrines that can be considered false gospels. I understand that a closer look at these gospels is important. Therefore, let us start with The Gospel of Permissive Grace Grace has been defined by many as being an unmerited favor from God. We are taught that it is given to those by God who does not deserve it. Our understanding of grace comes from Ephesians 2-8 which states, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Many in the church use the phrase, The grace and love of God are unconditional and they are freely given to each of us. Now the main question here is, Is grace conditional or unconditional? and is it unmerited or not? The word permissive from the dictionary means to habitually or characteristically accept or be tolerant of something, as social behavior or linguistic usage, that others might disapprove or forbid. Now, grace, strong concordance G5485 is of the merciful kindness by which God, exerting His holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps, strengthens, increases them in Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and kindles them to the exercise of the Christian virtues. To me, within the concept of permissive grace, God because of His characteristics of being loving and righteous must accept or be tolerant to our behavior thus bestowing His grace on us regardless of that behavior. In other words, God is a social justice warrior. This concept is completely different from what the strong concordance, G5485, indicates. Permissive grace is the main doctrine of the progressive church movement. Permissive grace within the progressive church centers on the free will of man doctrine. Under the understanding of free will, God allows us to do as we will. This concept is centered on the assumption that God will not force us to obey Him. Therefore, we as humans can overrule God's instructions with no repercussions. Again in G5485, 
we are told that God exerts His holy influence upon souls. Another aspect of this permissive grace is that God will accept you without there being a behavioral change. He will do this because He is loving and will that none perish. For this belief to be true, you must dismiss God's other characteristics. We would need to forget that He has a set of guidelines that cannot be broken concerning His relationship to His elect. Within the belief of permissive grace, God loves you unconditionally and God loves you just as you are. Unconditional love is interpreted as God's unconditional acceptance of one's lifestyle. Understanding that the word permissive indicates that God needs our permission to do this or that in our lives. Let us understand that God does not ask nor need our permission to do anything because He is sovereign, the King. Also, we would need to deny He is omniscient having all knowledge and awareness. Psalm 139, 6-12 says this, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, it is high, I cannot attain unto it. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend into heaven, thou art there, if I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day, the darkness and the light are both alike to thee. Finally, we must refuse His omnipresence. This is the fact that He is everywhere at the same time orchestrating everything. No one can hide from Him, not one second of the day. Therefore, because of these three attributes of God, there is nothing but His perfect grace. Everything that happens, happens according to His purpose, Romans 8:28, Ephesians 1:11, and Proverbs 16:4. Those who believe in the gospel of permissive grace are those who knowingly or unknowingly oppose the gospel of Jesus Christ which is repent, take a true look at, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, available only to those that are chosen. The Gospel of Social Justice Social justice is a political term that is a key to secularism and has no place in Christianity. It is the view that everyone deserves equal economic, political, and social rights and opportunities by any means necessary. Social justice activists are warriors that attempt to open the doors of access and opportunity for everyone using all available devices. Their focus is particularly on those they believe are in the greatest need in one or more of the above mentioned, however, their actions only benefit those in power. Within the concept of social justice lays a strong need to bring society up to a level of equality that all are equal in the social activists' sight. It is based on its components that are virtually impossible to obtain. Social justice is an arm of intersectionality which pits the oppressed against the oppressor. Therefore, social justice cannot be obtained unless there is an elimination of one of its intersectionality elements of being oppressed or an oppressor. It has been observed that many religious leaders use the scriptures to promote this idea of social justice. The primary scripture used is Acts 2:42-45, which states, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread, and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together, and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men as every man had need. As biblical influencers, they use the Word of God to meet an agenda. Here the agenda is to do social work so all people can be equal in needs. Under the teachings of social justice, 
many individuals lose their understanding of being responsible toward themselves. This causes a lack of responsibility by many who follow this belief system which leads them to respond to situations not responsibly but recklessly. The Gospel of New Age Spirituality The New Age movement is considered by many of its members as a silver bullet against racism, poverty, sickness, hunger, and war. They believe that all we to do is get along and all problems will disappear. Their understanding that the accomplishment of this environment is grounded in a heightened spiritual consciousness. A consciousness that can be achieved via reincarnations, astrology, psychics, and the presence of spiritual energy and physical objects. They tend to be worshippers of the creature, rather than the creator. Romans 1. We find that many young people today are looking for different ways to meet their spiritual needs. Many New Age leaders teach that salvation is not only found in Christianity but many other forms of religious practices in combination. The movement closely resembles the charismatic movement. These are but only three movements that have or are attempting to penetrate the mainstream Christian denominations. The key word in the Gospel of the New Age spirituality is spirituality. This indicates that they have been contacting familiar spirits that are guiding them to all knowledge. This is true in many cults and sects such as witches that use spells and objects to contact spiritual beings. Also, Joseph Smith's contact with the angel Moroni, who gave him the golden plates of knowledge. The Holy Bible in the Old and New Testaments tells us to beware of such visitations. How does God view the world? The theological worldview is based on the precepts of Jewish and Christian beliefs. Being the primary theme of the Holy Bible, the theological worldview focus on the God of the Old Testament, Jehovah, the self-existing One, and the God of the New Testament, Jesus, the final true living God, Emmanuel, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. It must be noted that you cannot separate Jehovah from Jesus or Jesus from Jehovah, Strong Concordance G2962, indicate that they both hold the title Lord. An in-depth understanding of Christianity is the belief that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God who came to earth to save His people from their sin, Matthew 1:21. The sin that they were committing was based on unbelief and turning away from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who they knew as Jehovah. If we look at the sins of Jesus' people, we find that their major sin was following ungodly leaders, primarily the Pharisees, scribes, and the priest, that were leading them away from God's righteousness, Malachi 1 and 2. This sin of leaving God's righteousness is a result of Cain's actions in Genesis 4. Understanding that his action put a curse on his offsprings of having no God, and separating them from the offsprings of Seth, that called upon the name of the Lord. The belief is that God sent his son over 4,000 years later, after Adam and Eve left the garden, to correct the sin problem by sacrificing himself to destroy the works of the devil, flesh, this was the judgment pronounced on the serpent in the garden after he deceived, influenced, the woman to look into the tree of the knowledge of good and evil which caused her to eat from the tree. Destroying the works of the devil, freed the children of God from the bondage of unbelief about God and what he had in store for them which was entering the kingdom of heaven. We know that the works of the devil are those of the flesh. Before we continue, let us look at this confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees in Matthew 15 1-11, MSG. After that, Pharisees and religion scholars came to Jesus from Jerusalem, criticizing, Why do your disciples play fast and loose with the rules? But Jesus put it right back on them. Why do you use your rules to play fast and loose with God's commands? 
God clearly says, respect your father and mother, and, anyone denouncing father or mother should be killed. But you weasel around that by saying, whoever wants to, can say to father and mother, what I owe to you I've given to God. That can hardly be called respecting a parent. You cancel God's command by your rules. Frauds. Isaiah's prophecy of you hit the bullseye, these people make a big show of saying the right thing, but their heart isn't in it. They act like they're worshipping me, but they don't mean it. They just use me as a cover for teaching whatever suits their fancy. He then called the crowd together and said, listen and take this to heart. It's not what you swallow that pollutes your life, but what you vomit up. This confrontation shows how Jesus defended the faith and destroyed the works of the devil which set those who heard him from the bondage of violating God's command by listening to false teachers. Let us continue, those who are of Christ exhibit only the fruit of the Spirit which are, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. The interesting thing of one having the fruit of the Spirit is that there is no law. This is because to have them, within you, is to do them always and to always do them is to obey God's commandments always. The common doctrine of this world view is the nature, person, and deeds of Jesus and His relationship to the Father as the Son, Emmanuel, and humanity as the Christ, King. All of which is explained in the inerrant Word of God, the Bible. Therefore, to summarize Christianity there are six basic essential beliefs. The Bible is God's Word without error. Jesus was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. Fulfill all the prophecies about the Messiah, the coming King, God, Jehovah, is one, multiplex one by one by one equals one, Jesus is fully God and the flesh and the one and only true God. We are saved by believing in the kingship of Christ which we receive by His faith. There's life with Christ now in the Kingdom of Heaven. There are many other doctrines within our Christian understanding. However, any deviation from the essential teaching will lead to heresy, another gospel. Anti-Christianity Within the area of anti-Christianity, there are two schools of understandings. There is the understanding that Jesus is not God and the other is that He was only a righteous man. Regardless of which of these schools an individual follows, they are both adversaries of who Jesus is. Several scriptures warn us about those who are antichrists. One of the best warnings comes from 1 John 2:22, where we are told, Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ, the visible image of God? He is antichrist, that denieth the Father and the Son. The key phrase here is, Jesus is the Christ. The important thing here is the word Christ. We must understand that the word Christ is not a name but a title. Strong Concordance G5548, indicates that the title Christ means, to anoint, consecrating Jesus to the Messianic office, and furnishing Him with the necessary powers for its administration, enduing Christians with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Christ is the physical image of God that holds the administrated office of the King, Colossians 1:15, from the beginning until now and forever. The one responsible for everything that goes on in heaven and on earth, He has the final word in everything, James 4:12 the message Those who are antichrists knowingly or unknowingly deal in deception and cunningness and they are false prophets who attempt to make merchandise of believers 2 Peter 2:1-3 The merchandise they are selling is unbelief that comes from unrighteousness which leads to sin and death separation from God 
Genesis 4:16. Antichrist doctrine hinges on the opposite of Christianity. There is an additional modern book that can be used in conjunction with the Bible. Jesus didn't resurrect. There is only one God with no son equal to him. Jesus is not God or he is a lesser God. Man can be saved by good works. Life after death does not exist. Apologetics, Christianity versus Christianity. Within the doctrine of Christianity, the central figure is Jesus. Our understanding of him is that his nature, deeds, and actions are essential to what we believe about him and how we should respond to him. A question that I have found interesting is, what then is the central core of our Christianity? According to the dictionary, a core is, the central part of a fleshy fruit, containing the seeds. Also, it is the central, innermost, or most essential part of anything. I understand that many believe that what Jesus has done for us at the cross, saved us from our sins. Therefore, the core of Christianity has become the cross and the blood of Jesus that washes away our sins. How then can we truly understand what is the core of Christianity? As the dictionary indicates it as being essential, we must turn to a biblical answer. Here in Romans 7 6-13 from the Message Bible, Paul tells us this, For as long as we live that old way of life, doing whatever we felt we could get away with, sin was calling most of the shots as the old law code hemmed us in. And this made us all the more rebellious. In the end, all we had to show for it was miscarriages and stillbirths. But now that we're no longer shackled to that domineering mate of sin, and out from under all those oppressive regulations and fine print, we're free to live a new life in the freedom of God. But I can hear you say, if the law code was as bad as all that, it's no better than sin itself. That's certainly not true. The law code had a perfectly legitimate function. Without its clear guidelines for right and wrong, moral behavior would be mostly guesswork. Apart from the succinct, surgical command, you shall not covet, I could have dressed covetousness up to look like a virtue and ruined my life with it. Don't you remember how it was? I do, perfectly well. The law code started as an excellent piece of work. What happened, though, was that sin found a way to pervert the command into a temptation, making a piece of forbidden fruit out of it. The law code, instead of being used to guide me, was used to seduce me. Without all the paraphernalia of the law code, sin looked pretty dull and lifeless, and I went along without paying much attention to it. But once sin got its hands on the law code and decked itself out in all that finery, I was fooled, and fell for it. The very command that was supposed to guide me into life was cleverly used to trip me up, throwing me headlong. So sin was plenty alive, and I was stone dead. But the law code itself is God's good and common sense, each command sane and holy counsel. I can already hear your next question, does that mean I can't even trust what is good, that is, the law? Is good just as dangerous as evil? No again. Sin simply did what sin is so famous for doing, using the good as a cover to tempt me to do what would finally destroy me. By hiding within God's good commandment, sin did far more mischief than it could ever have accomplished on its own. As Paul indicates here, sin took the law of Moses hostage and perverted it to those that followed it. Could it be that we are experiencing the same thing here? Has sin found a way to become the core of Christianity? Can this be true? Presently, we are taught that the Church, which is the icon of Christianity, is just as sinful as the world, 
you cannot tell the difference. That it, the church, has failed its job to Christ. The only way these things could happen to Christianity is that sin has become its core. Do you know according to our teaching, we must be redeemed from sin, however, even after we have confessed Christ as our Savior, we are told we are still sinners. They continuously tell us, we are sinners saved by grace, that our redeemed nature is still wrapped in sinful flesh, therefore, we are still obligated to sin in some way. Now Paul tells us that to kill sin, we must find a law. In Romans 7 20-23, we find that Paul's answer is this, Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law, that, when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Now, Paul tells us to kill sin, we must have the law of God that is of the inward man. For this law is life, which is the newness of the Spirit. In fact, he says in verse 6 that, but now we are delivered from the law of sin and death, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit, and not in the oldness of the letter. What then does this mean? Currently, there is an understanding that Christianity is based on the law of life in Christ. This law of life, Romans 8, is what connects us to the righteousness of God, being in right standing with Him. We have been taught that our standing with God is based on the standing of Adam with God which is sinfulness. We are told that because of Adam's sin of disobedience, all of humanity is sinful and in need of the Saviour Jesus. Therefore, we have made Christianity into a religion that is in constant need of redemption from sin, even after salvation is gained. We are told that we must continuously petition God for intervention in our lives. From my perspective, the core of Christianity is who Jesus is. Isaiah 9 tells us this, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end, upon the throne of David, and upon his kingdom, now Isaiah says this is who he must be called when referring to his position as Emmanuel, God with us. Missing any of this will lead you down a path of no return. The path is called being a reprobate. This understanding brings us to the question of who is Jesus? This question is the glue that holds everything together. Currently, in Christianity, there are many views as to who Jesus is and what He represents. For what it is worth, if you read my book as the gospel you are being taught, the true gospel of Jesus Christ. You can get my perspective on this question. Now let us understand, the scriptures tell us that the wheat and tare must grow up together until the harvest. We know that the wheat knows Jesus is God in the flesh and that He knows them because they hear His voice. He is not a God, nor the brother of Satan but He is God Almighty, Jehovah our King.